The reality though, even what we saw is that if you're a small company, that's still really hard to do because you just don't have the scale yet. And so we had on the consulting side clients and even investing side companies that said, Hey, should we consider making the U S or making Mexico? And while it sounds uh, ideal, the, the practical reality is not so easy. And the reason is because it, China is so well-developed in its infrastructure and supply chain, right? To recreate that, even in the U.S. is hard because a lot of it moves offshore. So you're still, you still end up bringing in a lot of things from Asia, uh, whether it's components or tooling. And so you have that cost. Then you have the cost of making stuff in the U.S., which is inherently cheap, more expensive because of labor and overhead. And then there's the complication now you've actually created a spider web of different things around the world, right? So the practical reality was if you're a small to medium-sized company, it wasn't so easy. Hello, welcome to Tiny Dragon, where we dive deep into tech startups mastering product market fit, even in the most unfamiliar markets. I'm your host, Elaine. Join us as we dive deep into the heart of tech startups, uncovering the secrets of how tech startups found their product market fit, turning complex insights into actionable strategies for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts alike. Okay, welcome to Tiny Dragon. So today we have uh, Larry Zhe uh, from Q Ventures and Q Studio uh, as our guest. Okay, so Larry, uh, I know you many years ago back in Hong Kong. <laughs> yes, and uh, I know you're like in the hardware space, like you help innovate and you have a venture uh, firm as well. Can you tell right. us a bit more about your background, how you got there? Sure. sure, a bit about my background. So I've been doing uh, consumer tech for about close to 25 years now a bit of a little bit of everything from the internet days and doing uh, early internet development and, and websites to moving into hardware early 2000 when hardware was really just beginning to be a thing uh, with digital media so beginning of sort of digital content there were things like rio mp uh, mp3 players which is if you recall was a thing used to download yeah. mp3 files we, we built uh, yeah exactly <clears throat> so we i work for a brand called rio in the us and then we built um, MP3 players so you could actually um, carry on music until iPod came along. We built early days of DVRs for a brand called Replay TV, which kind of created a whole idea of storing video and cloud streaming, which became eventually cloud streaming. And then my career progressed through the evolution of technology and hardware consumer, where that then evolved into a social platform world where things started to get connected in communities, then into connected devices via smartphones and things that were actually now, integrating across platforms before that devices were one-off and then eventually things were connected over a platform over over software over, the, over things like the cloud which was a new term back then uh, then of course smartphone came along and then things got connected to the smartphone so i started to build products i worked for brands and build products that connected to the smartphone and, and leveraging mobile and then iot became a thing or the early client of ours was fitbit creating the whole category of wearables that evolved into more sophisticated IoT devices, smart home, et cetera. And now in this sort of trend of more data around AI and connectivity, devices are getting smarter, more connected. And so that's been my background in building stuff, investing. I started a venture fund called Q Venture Partners in 2016 to leverage this trend of understanding technology and investing in deep tech companies globally and then and in building companies. So I've done it all from building, investing, and running companies. How did you get into hardware? Because I remember your background is like Viant, like it was like internet, yeah. like web, yeah. right? Like yeah. how did you get into yeah. hardware? Yeah, it's one of those things where your career kind of meanders into a specific direction. 
But in during the Vine days, during the good days of internet, where companies could charge millions of dollars to build a website, which is crazy now, right? To think about. But back then, one of our early clients was Replay TV, which at the time they invented the concept of DVR. So they had this device where you put in the home, it's you know size of a VCR. It had a hard drive, and you could actually record TV later, right? So this is a whole idea. Then that thing became connected to the internet when internet started to boom in 98-99. And then they wanted to be able to control this device remotely. So at the time, there was no such thing as a smartphone. The only thing that was really connected was uh, a Palm Pilot. If you remember, there's a... Oh, uh, God. Yeah, you have to pilot. learn how to write the character. That's right. They used graffiti. So Palm had a device that was using cellular called Palm, I think it was Palm 7. Uh, and so early days, again, before the app store, they built, they wanted to build an app that could run on your palm to actually control your device at home over the internet. Right. And so this whole mm -hmm. like, like was groundbreaking at the time. So I ran the project for Viant to actually build that app and to actually demonstrate you could actually control a device over the internet. And so this was super early of cloud connected devices. And after the crash, that company, Replay TV hired me. And I joined that company and then started to do hard work coming out to Asia to start manufacturing. So this was back in 2001. And that's that was my journey in hardware. And then I just loved it. Be able to actually build stuff and see in your hands and touch and play with it and see people use it was really very fun. And so I started to just continue doing hardware the rest of my career. Oh, so did you have an engineering background to... No, I don't. A funny thing is <laughs> I, I started off in studying aerospace engineering, thinking I wanted to either design rocket ships for NASA or uh, be an Imagineer at Disneyland. Wow. Um, but I found that engineering was, wasn't really my thing. So I, I actually graduated inter international economics. But my first job out of school was actually coding. So I was a software developer and then just continued to stay on that tech track. Academically, I'm not trained in engineering, but just through the years, having done so much of it mm -hmm. on the go. I remember Play TV. Is it related to Philips? Replay TV was not related to Phil. Replay TV was its own thing, a startup. It was acquired by a company called Sonic Blue. And Sonic uh -huh. Blue was a company that, even before that, made uh, graphic chips called a company called S3. And so they acquired a bunch of brands and created a consumer group. So they acquired Replay TV, Rio MP3, and then another brand called Go Video, which did audio video. And so then that company then sold off assets to a Japanese company called Denon. Philips, I don't think, was ever involved. Yeah, because I, I, when I was interning at Philips Design, there there was like, because that period of time, like what, 2008, around that time, yeah. it was all about digitization, re replacing the re recorders, the VX, VHS tapes. Digitizing everything. Yeah, so I, I remember there was a product similar to that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, everyone's trying digitizing at the time. Around 2008 was when I was working for Cisco. And at the time, I was working, working with a company called Flip Video. So yeah. if you were video, there was a handheld digital video recorder. Yeah, uh, it was, yeah, it was very yeah, similar. It was like the first device that switched from tape to like digital, right? Yes. Recording video, and then Cisco acquired that company and then they acquired the design firm I was working for called Moto Development Group. And I joined Cisco via, via the acquisition for a couple of years. Right. And that's where I met you in Hong Kong at Moto so. Hong Kong. Yes. Well, that must have been, that was a long time ago. That's yeah, a long time ago. Okay. So how did you get into venture? Like why spin off like a Q Venture Partners and invest yeah. in tech? Yeah. I started the consulting firm in Hong Kong when I was living there in 2010, late 2010. Then we started to work with some interesting hardware companies. There were different waves of hardware. 
early 2010 to I'd 13, 14, there was an explosion of hardware again, right? Things mm -hmm. got, and the reason was because the cloud got cheaper, sensors got cheaper, and manufacturing got cheaper. Everything got easier, right? It used to take millions of dollars to build a product, but suddenly you have Kickstarter, where mm. people put an idea up and then start start the process, right? And so it was an explosion of ideas. Now, so a lot of those ideas didn't pan out, but some of the early entrants um, really did well, like Fitbit, um, as I mentioned. Fitbit, we worked with them late 2010, and they were, at the time, I think just Series B funded, maybe series late Series A, and they hadn't quite found their product market fit yet. They had launched the little wearable you put on your hip, not even on their wrist yet. Mm. We helped them actually over about six years launch their first five generations of the actual wearable you put on your wrist. And then they hit inflection point and the, the whole thing became uh, a category. Over the years, we worked at companies like Fitbit. Other clients that come our way are, were like Dropcam, which became Nest, Google Nest Cam. And a whole variety of other kind of companies that were emerging following this trend of technology and the commoditization of components and costs. And so we realized, hey, we're actually coming across some pretty cool clients here. Some of them are category leaders and creators. Some of them are using new technology to, to do some new applications. And since we know how to make these things and we're seeing them first, why don't we consider investing? And so we look back in sort of our portfolio of companies we work with as consultants, and we just ran a hypothetical return on that portfolio, mm. assuming we invest in everybody equally. And it was pretty, the return was actually phenomenal. If, had we actually invested, we would have made uh, about 4.3 times the money if we had actually invested blindly. So we said, we can be a little smarter than that. We can actually pick and choose and see trends coming up. So the idea that if you know how something's being made, you hopefully have a little better insight into the opportunities and challenges. Uh, my partner, Henry, and I started a uh, fund in 2016, raised about $10.5 million with the idea, hey, let's ride on this trend of understanding technology. We have a huge a platform of knowledge and network and consultants. We also have an insight into how technology is actually used. And following the trend of deep technology, which is taking fundamental hard research and productizing it, seeing there's an angle here to invest in it and maybe find the next unicorn or maybe not unicorn successful company, right? They could apply technology. So that was in 2016 when investing in early stage was still really hot. And we then ended up investing in about 17 companies globally, mm -hmm. predominantly in the U.S. Okay. So can you explain for the audience by deep tech, what exactly do you mean and what yeah. kind of yeah. mm -hmm. Deep tech has become a commonly used term now, right? Yeah. But deep tech is typically something that is based out of research. So it's typically would be an investing applied research where universities may come out of it, scientists that have discovered something novel and new and in the lab environment, but there's an opportunity to potentially take that out of the lab into the real world in some application. So deep technology spans across a lot of things. It's not just hardware, but it could be everything from material science to sensors, to mm -hmm. AI, to right. energy. And so there's a bunch of verticals, but the idea here is that there is a fundamental <laughs> Sorry. Let's see research behind it and opportunity to actually apply it outside of it in the in the lab. Okay. I see. We'll yeah. cut that out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Okay. Uh so in terms of so it's research from universities. So do you collaborate with universities? Yeah, universities are a good place to go um, source for interesting opportunities. So the, there are a lot of universities that have uh, tech transfer offices. Mm -hmm. and, and the ones that are well-established are uh, like MIT, uh, Stanford, Berkeley. We even went international to universities in, in Israel and in Europe. 
And the idea here is you're, you're really understanding what's emerging out of university research and in, in, in the lab. Some of the ones that are promising, the university will help them spin out into business opportunities for investors or, or early stage investing. And the idea here is not as so much to collaborate with universities, but to be really in the network and understanding what's emerging out of that. Mm -hmm. In the area here, for example, at Berkeley, Deck is a really good early accelerator that works with technology companies, not just out of Berkeley, but globally. And so there's some affiliation with universities where you're identifying promising researchers, professors that have interest in technology that can be spun out. Mm. So how does the process work? Does the university own the IP, part of the IP <clears throat> and the student? Where... The yeah, the yeah. way it works is they have the tech transfer offers will have different terms and different frameworks for how they spin it out. But the way it normally works is there is some percentage of royalty that the comp the university will get back. So if you spin out a company, that you have to give a, an equity so that it's interesting to the, not only the founders but also to investors. But then there's a agreement that they'll license out the IP to that company for some royalty back. And so that varies by university, but that's how the university would recoup and make the financial profit off of the IP. So usually is it the university takes a bigger part or the- Oh no, they take a small part. Like it's a low single digits typically. If they took up too much of it, it wouldn't incentivize the founders or the investors to invest. And longer term, it's not great for the company. So most universities aren't greedy about it, but they want to see, obviously they see value come back to the university since they funded the research. Got it. Okay. We had COVID the last few years and for hardware, it's difficult to yeah. collaborate virtually, right? Or remotely. How how like how have things changed uh, over the last few years? Yeah. I th I'd say there are a few trends over the past three years from COVID. Number one, everyone was just like caught off guard by the supply chain, right? We all saw it, how all of a sudden you have container prices that went from $2,000 per container to ship to $20,000. Wow. So everything got expensive to, to ship. Components became in a shortage where it was really hard to source components. Our team in Hong Kong and China, we were scrambling to find components to help build things. And so there's a realization that the supply chain was, was actually strategic, right? This is the whole sort of trend of, of rethinking about how things are made. And so there's a there was early... And I guess in, in 2020, this all this talk about, hey, how do we, the companies around, how do you mitigate this risk? Or how do you reduce the risk of supply chain reliance on China? And so a few things happened. One, one is this idea of onshoring or nearshoring, uh, as mm -hmm. the term is called, where it's making things in the US or domestically, wherever the market is, or nearshore, meaning an adjacent um, country like Mexico, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of manufacturing the US and some of the US, there's obviously some a story there, a narrative there, but also leveraging the existing know-how, right? There's also the idea of leveraging low-cost manufacturing processes and AI, right? So things got easier. Robotics came on the automation. So a lot of things collectively combined to make it the, the whole trend go into distributed manufacturing, as well as onshoring, nearshoring. The reality, though, even what we saw is that if you're a small company, that's still really hard to do because you just don't have the scale yet. And so we had on the consulting side clients and even investing side companies that said, hey, should we consider making the US or making Mexico? And while it sounds uh, ideal, the, the practical reality is not so easy. And the reason is because it, China is so well developed in its infrastructure and supply chain, right? To recreate that, even in the US is hard because a lot of it moves offshore. So you're still, you still end up bringing a lot of things from Asia 
uh, whether it's components or tooling. And so you have that cost. Then you have the cost of making stuff in the US, which is inherently cheap, more expensive because of labor and overhead. And then there's the complication now you've actually created a spider web of different things around the world, right? So the practical reality was if you're a small to medium-sized company, it wasn't so easy. Mm. And if you're a lot of like Apple, that's a totally different scale. You can just create an entire ecosystem, right? And so Apple you know, created new ecosystems in, in Vietnam, in India, mm-hmm. and you're seeing them move a product away from China. And so they're able to actually leverage economies of scale. But that said, I think this is a trend that started and will end. I think with advanced manufacturing, with AI, and the general idea that you want to be more strategic, this will continue and it'll become easier for startups. But it's going to take time to develop that ecosystem and, and supply chain. Mm. So after COVID, do you, because previously, primarily manufacturing is in China, right? So after COVID, has it parts of it gone to Southeast Asia? Are companies still yeah. relying or what's yeah. the percentage, you think? There, manufacturing has always happened outside of China in, in Taiwan, Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Singapore, and, and yeah. it still does. There was definitely more push to go in that direction away from China, mm. uh, not only because of the supply chain issues, but also because of politics, With right? Politics, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. U.S.-China relations are sour. Now there's a lot of restriction on technology exported to China. So there are places like uh, Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore picked up more manufacturing. Um, even Taiwan uh, picked up more manufacturing. Um, even though they started manufacturing in, in China, they were going back to Taiwan. Right. But um, it still doesn't compare to the scale of China, right? <clears throat> Even today, a lot of our projects are, are still primarily either assembled or sourced out of China. It's just very hard to create the level of scale that China has created infrastructure. Because let's say in China, you want to go find a, a specific part, say a motor. You'll find dozens, if not hundreds of motor companies in a specific region, but you won't find that anywhere else in the world. Just mm sheer scale of it is still massive in China. Okay. But do you still have to travel to those places in China? We, uh, our team does travel. This is why our consulting business has been helpful is that during COVID when people could not travel, Mm. we had resources in China could fill in the gap. Today, I'd say people want to travel less and they need to travel less, right? A lot of things can be done remotely, but because of manufacturing and physical things, sometimes you just cannot do everything virtually, right? You have to be there on site to look at things, to touch things, to to do things in real time. Whereas software, obviously, you can do anywhere in a distributed way. But for manufacturing, it still requires some level of travel to be on site, but I'd say less than before. Okay. And how far are we with virtual reality? (laughs) Working 3D... Like with Apple's uh, the goggle? Yeah. The, the, uh, what's it called? Apple... Vision? Vision, Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wait, in the context of manufacturing, you mean? I think. Or because that's really 3D and environmental. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And immersiveness. The whole AR sort of mixed reality thing started if probably in mid 2015, 16, where people are using augmented reality to overlay stuff onto equipment, for example, to repair an airplane engine. Or you could overlay, okay, this is this part and this is what you do. And so people started experimenting with that already. And so I think that's going to continue to trend as the technology gets better, right? The resolution of video gets better. Things are much more accurate and, and easier to use. For sure, that's going to um, continue to happen. Uh, I think for manufacturing, it's going to, until we get to a point where everything is made by robots, right? You still need human intervention and being on site. So I think the technology in AR helps with some things like maybe 
instead of traveling to Asia to look at something, now you can do it virtually, right? With an mm-hmm. Apple and, and seeing it actually in 3D yeah. and probably help reduce some travel. I think it's still too early right now to, right. to say, but yeah, I think once Apple launches theirs and has true spatial 3D, that'll be super interesting to see how we can use that. Mm, yeah, I think there's always like an inflection point, even smartphones. It was really the iPhone that kind of took off. Yeah, Previously, it was, it was <clears throat> very clunky and <laughs> yeah. it was like the, the PDAs and the phones, two separate things. And then yeah. Yeah, Newton was like huge. <laughs> it right. had That's to right. be small enough. And I don't know, maybe even for the goggles, it has to be more like an, a pair of eyeglasses before it will really right. take off, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the trend, right? Technology hasn't caught up to what I think humans want yet. Um, where we want something to be practically invisible, right? Not a big clunky ski goggle <laughs> you're walking around with. Um, and it's only going to continue to shrink, right? Recently, Meta has had some pretty interesting success with their uh, Ray-Ban glasses. I, I don't know if you've seen, they have the, the camera, right? Mm-hmm. But the use cases are limited, right? You're not overlaying stuff or you're able to record stuff. And there's a bunch of, I think, TikTokers now using it. I don't know if this is just a trend or it's a long-term thing, but what is for sure is that technology is getting shrunken down, right? So at some point, we will have natural-looking classes that are easy to use, that will overlay images. The stuff I've seen to date, to date is is not good enough yet for applications that require high fidelity, let's say in engineering yeah. or things. I think simple things like gaming are okay or some casual entertainment. Like I I have a Oculus yeah do yeah, at home and it's fun to use once in a while and i use it for working out but i can't use it every day right all the time yeah, get dizzy. <laughs> yeah it's just not comfortable to put on something so heavy on your face all day mm-hmm. so I, I think it'll the day will come at, is it in the next 10 years i i don't know but right. <laughs> it'll be in our lifetimes have, have you seen the humane.ai that that thing that you speak to yeah yeah i haven't seen in person only online okay. the videos on the ted talk and it's interesting i think it's interesting that they are taking that approach to connecting a, a, another device and they raised a lot of money to do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'll, I'm Apple sure people, I, right? Apple people. Yeah. Ex-Apple, yeah. yeah. I, I'm a, I, to be honest, I'm a skeptic of that. I'm not sure if humans who are now glued to the screen are ready to move away from the screen to Yeah, because you can't project color onto your palm, right? <laughs> you can project yeah. limited, yeah, you can project limited information and text, but if you look at where consumers have adopted the most it's like video right oh yeah youtube youtube how do you recreate that and number one do you want to recreate number two the humans as people do we want to consume content on our hands or on a really high fidelity yeah resolution yeah yeah you have to talk all the time (laughs) yeah exactly and and that's another thing is i think there's a huge issue with privacy right i'm not going to walk around talking out loud. There's very few, as I was thinking throughout the day, very few instances where I'm in a place quiet enough where I feel comfortable talking <laughs> to my device and right. not people listening, whatever it is. So the, the interaction points are going to be very limited, I think. Yeah, here, here's where it's really interesting. The user experience, it, like maybe it won't be just more, right now it's visual, right? Right. Face, right it's going to be haptic it's going to be voice it's going to be sound it's going to be like multi-model coming up so it's going to change right absolutely so it's hard to see how a um, clip-on device will compete with your your, your iphone which has mm-hmm. everything right it's now i think there may be some use cases in b2b enterprise maybe it makes sense right you're walking around maybe a store or you're 
in a factory and, and talking is just a natural interface. This is easier, right? Yeah. Uh, but in consumer, I think it's going to be really hard to see that take off. Yeah. It's if you need to hands free, maybe, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Since your background is studying the US, you spent what, 20 years in Asia? And now you're back. Uh, 16, in... yeah. 16 years in Asia. 16? Okay. You're now <laughs> back in Silicon Valley, right? What yeah. are the cross cultural stories from either those tech companies or tech startups you work with that are interesting? Like whenever they have to go to a foreign market, right? Yeah. I think there, there are some interesting use cases. I think maybe I'll talk from the product side first. I think. One thing I've learned is for consumer products, the user experience is, is everything, right? We always talk about it. Maybe it's overused, but user experience is really key in terms of how you adapt, not only the interface, but understanding the culture. Yeah. And so, and, and that's sometimes a bit hard to understand and quantify. I think yourself, Elaine, you've, you've done this, you know, throughout your career, understanding what are the user needs and different sort of cultural expectations, right? Mm. Uh, especially as you've done a lot of in China, we, we work on the projects where we looked at multi-generational households and we looked at the baby sector and, and how do parents parent differently than the Westerners and what does that mean? And so I think that what we've seen is this, this idea that you, you can't just plop the product into another market, right? You really have to adapt it to those different cultural needs. And that's part of it. But the other part is also understanding the tone of how you market it. And that's more in the branding and marketing side. So mm -hmm. we recently past three, four years worked with a company out of Norway, mm -hmm. who I was advising and also helping to build a exercise bike that was a crossover with gaming. So think of it like high quality 3D gaming with a Peloton. So, but basically encouraging families and kids to exercise more because they're having fun. And there is based out of research out of Norway. And so they developed a great product. We helped them design it and we worked with Andrea Ponti, who you know, to, to mm -hmm. do industrial design, beautiful product, great concept. And then they were all the challenge. One of the challenges they faced uh, amongst many, uh, besides COVID, <laughs> them, was that understanding sort of that cultural uh, crossover. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so they, they were a Nor Norwegian company, which has a very a Nordic style and mm -hmm. friendliness to it. And, but fitness in the US, which was a trend for a while, if you recall, Companies like Mirror and Tonal and Peloton kicked off the whole trend. There's a lot of uh, a different energy level, right? A different type mm -hmm. of to it. And I think there's a lot of challenge in understanding that sort of cultural aspect, right? So there's the product side, but also how do people, you know, want to be communicated to? So I think that that's, and so I think that they sometimes miss the mark on that. And so I think having a team that is actually local is really key that understands not only the user needs, but understands the tone and the sort of cultural nuances of the product mm -hmm. right? and how you communicate is important. Yeah. And product nowadays is connected, right? And I remember like back in the late 2000s, <laughs> I also worked on Philips uh, MP3 player. And back oh. then it was like, I was in the UX team. <laughs> But then the software team and the hardware team are completely separate in different locations. One was in Asia, one was in Seattle. Yeah, one was in... Yeah. So for us, it was like the user experience, like how do I even know what, what happens when you press on the hardware button? What happens in the software, right? Right. Like what what's the over? How, how do you design? Because it's not just, it's all interrelated, right? But I think back then it was early. <laughs> I think the industrial designs just created a few buttons and just 
<laughs> randomly, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? And say, oh, if you press 10 seconds, this is going to happen. You press 15 seconds, this is going to happen. Yeah. Right? How do you integrate hardware and software seamlessly is my question. Yeah. Back then, MP3 days, it was much hard to product development, right? And it, things took longer. I think nowadays it's easier to prototype so you can quickly breadboard something, you can quickly create 3D print parts and put it in people's hands, mm. right? Software is easier to develop, right? Back then, MP3 days, it was not easy, right? To, to code something quickly. So I think the tools that made it possible to do earlier testing with users and really applying design thinking principles right. has made it you know, much easier to integrate the hardware and software. Because as, as you said, pressing a button does X on, this, on the software side or the app side. 15 years ago, when you and I were building MP3 players, that was not easy to do, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. And how do you simulate that, right? Yeah. yeah. But now you, you have all these prototyping tools that are either free or cheap, right? Everything from simulating in Figma to building a, a prototype with a Raspberry Pi to 3 d parts, you can do all this in a matter of weeks and months, right? Back then, you wouldn't be able to get a budget to do it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you know how software and hardware mindsets are very different because software, you can continually upgrade it, right? <laughs> but hardware is once you manufacture, okay. hardware costs and it's super expensive, right? Super yeah. expensive to fix, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a huge challenge of hardware is that you have to, to the best that you can, get it right early in the design process. So you have to spend more time upfront to mm. do the design iteration before you lock things down and get into the manufacturing part of it. Because once you start tooling, start building things, it gets exponentially expensive to fix things or to change things. Yeah. And hardware, because you have to deal with physics, <laughs> sometimes yeah. you can't control. We've worked on projects with clients where, you know, the schedule was out of their expectation, right? Like you can't it always control. is. Yeah. How, <laughs> how, do you, is. how do you mitigate that? I, I've been asking myself that for years. <laughs> it's not easy to mitigate. Because because with hardware you're dealing with not just in bits where you're putting atoms and this is why Apple can spend hundreds of millions of dollars on on product development and manufacturing where they have a team of engineers on a tiny part <laughs> of the iPhone right mm -hmm. you can do three people on a screw and so when you're a startup you don't have those resources right and so it's very easy to make mistakes but hardware is also and manufacturing is not always 100% predictable. You can model things, you can use experience to apply to principles of ma making things. But at the end of the day, by the time you make it and actually test it out, you don't actually know until that point. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that ends up costing a lot of hardware companies a lot of time and money is that they design, they build, they, they test, but when they test, you discover something new. Oh, we have to change this thing to make it stronger, or we have to make this thing to make it look better. And then you have to backtrack a little bit to fix those things. And that cycle can be anywhere from a month to three months or more, which is very costly. Or, or software, as you said, I just need to fix this thing and I could recompile and just ship it again. Right. And test it again, right? So it's a hard thing to, to mitigate, except to say that you have to front load as much design testing in the beginning as possible to minimize the changes that need to happen down the line. Okay. Has AI helped any of this? <clears throat> Cheaper, better, faster. <laughs> I'm exploring that now to see how okay. can AI and Gen AI actually synthesize a lot of data, <clears throat> right? I think one thing that we've learned is that a ChatGPT and all the LLMs out there <clears throat> have good been good about synthesizing huge amounts of data into a very natural, human understandable way. AI has been around, for, obviously machine learning has been around well before that. 
but mm -hmm. it was hard to access. It was expensive, right? The user interface into that was not so easy. But I've been thinking about how are there points in the process, product design, manufacturing, supply chain quality, where we can ingest a lot more data um, frequently and early, use it as a feedback cycle to actually improve that process, right? Mm. Uh, so I so this is something an area I'm, I'm thinking about exploring. Uh, I don't have um, something solid for you yet, but I think AI will help in this area because there's right. just a lot of data, right? Another related topic is the metaverse, which was like a keyword last year. You're no longer. Yeah. But a lot of like three people working in 3D, like product, <laughs> architects, interior, like at one point, everybody's, oh, we can do virtual stuff. And you can imagine like spaces that are, it's not possible in the real world, right? Yeah. Right. What, what do you think about that trend? Is that going away or is it going to um... We, we explore it ourselves. We try, we bought Oculuses to, to actually try out the idea of incorporating to product design where we can now model an object in space and especially large objects and hopefully try to share with clients and to interact. The problem was the fidelity and the quality just wasn't there yet. Mm. Uh, isn't there yet. I, th I think there's still an opportunity to do that as companies launch better and better products like Apple. But at, at the moment, I don't think we have low-cost technology that's that is easy we've looked at stuff in 3d we've looked at really high-end haptics where you can touch simulate touch and feel mm. uh, these are all just different disparate systems and components right they haven't been all put together yet and there are narrow use cases where it's there are budgets big enough to put together systems like in defense or maybe in a pilot training or industrial training but for consumers we're just not there yet what about, okay, talking about hardware, you, can, you have to talk about China, right? <laughs> and China, I think the, the past, I don't know, uh, what, five, six years or, or more, there are companies that are that went international, like DJI. The drones, the cameras, it's really tiny cameras. Oh, yeah. Uh, 360 <laughs> cameras, and their hardware is doing pretty well, right? Like yeah. how, what, what do you think is the trend and, and how innovative are, are the companies? Or you mean trend of, of China companies or what do you yeah, mean? Yeah, China companies, yeah. Yeah, I, I think China companies have become super, they've always been innovative. And we, anyone who's been in manufacturing knows like in, in Shenzhen, Dongguan, they're really good at early days of copying, right? Copying yeah. and bringing costs down, right? Mm -hmm. Even if the copy version is, let's say 80% as good, it's like good enough, right? Mm. Now, what we've seen in recent years is a mix of really successful companies like, let's say Anchor, Anchor is a great example. Casetify is a good example where they cross-bordered from Asia and not only understood and leveraged their know-how in low-cost manufacturing quality, but also branding and user mm -hmm. experience. They've Those are two, two examples where companies have really understood very high-quality product design, marketing, branding, and really packaged it right in, in a way that, that Westerners find it is acceptable, right? It's not a cheap China knockoff. Now, the other sort of under spectrum, you have companies like Shine and Timu, right? Mm. Which has have taken what has already existed in China, which is low cost, this massive low cost, cost mass scale product and, and taken it overseas. And now they, because of the existence of platforms and mobile, they're able to take this massive supply chain overseas and sell it for cheap, right? And there's a market for that, right? It's not a knock on that at all, but there's a market for that. So I see a continued trend of, Companies are more sophisticated. They're able to understand brand building and marketing and launch very high quality products and product design. On the other end, 
take stuff and put it into the market here for the sort of low to mid tier market. And we see this on Amazon all the time now, right? I think on Amazon, I think if you shop on Amazon, I think who doesn't, you will always find some no-name brand that is a like a second, third, fourth option, right? On almost Yeah, any category you cheap, find. cheaper, yes. Yeah, there's a cheap, and they've all found some niche, whether it's like, oh, we do this feature better or whatever. Yeah. But the names are always like some unpronounceable <laughs> concept, right? <laughs> yeah. It's cheaper. And then so there's always like this trend of bringing that scale to the US. So I think that will continue. So do you think they are still competing on price or are they going to be market leaders in certain areas or innovate in certain I think they'll end up computing price because they are happy with lower margins and they have lower cost structures and they can do all, practically everything remotely, right? Their overhead is just completely different. So they're fine to just ship some containers over Amazon warehouse and just do everything remotely and live with thinner margins. On the other hand, I think the ones that are trying to innovate will need to invest more and, and they have to invest in the user experience, the software, and, and really having differentiated technology or, or product features. Do, do you also see Chinese companies coming out of China or because it, it used to be like globalization, a lot of Western companies want to go to China and now Yeah. it's kind of changed, right? Oh, yeah. Over COVID, it's almost like companies are trying to retract and be more local. Yeah. But I've also seen Chinese companies trying to come out to the They West. have, for sure. And those, the Anchor and Kissfire are two examples where Asia cross border has been successful. But yeah, definitely. I think as the China market, consumer market matures, economy has slowed down and investment has slowed down, they have to look overseas. I think they will look. In US, which is obviously one of the biggest consumer markets, but also in Europe and other parts of Asia. And I think that is an opportunity, right? How to work with companies to go overseas, not actually to go outside of China into other parts of the world. And with software and with platforms like Amazon, I think it's only easier for them to do it now. But going overseas, they also will have the reverse problem, right? Like understanding Western markets and things Right. work, the speed of how things work are different, right? China is like 997, <laughs> people don't sleep or used Yeah, to. Yeah. yeah. But even that, do you think it's going away? I think I think 996 is 997, 996, I think. Yeah. It's now there's a whole trend of what do they call it? Lying flat. Tomping. <laughs> Tomping. Like Right. not doing anything, right? Yes. Not doing anything, The younger right? generation, yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting to see how that is a opposite end of the spectrum now of super hard work until lying flat. True, yes. Okay. What are some of the biggest mistakes for companies or startups to avoid when they go to another market, do you think? The biggest mistakes, I think one mistake is not having local presence, right? I think you cannot get away with it with, with not, without having a local presence to understand, again, the, the consumer, whether it's an enterprise or, or, you know, a regular user. So understanding sort of the user needs, the cultural needs, the branding, language, all those things. I think there's a lot, for hardware, there's a lot of complications, right? You're not just shipping software. There are things like regulations, there's tax, there's support. There are a lot of things that are invisible to the user, but as a company, there are costs. Right? You have to support things, you have to fix things, you have to ship things, you have to store things. Those are a lot of things that are you typically underestimated in the early days of a company. So I'd say those are a couple of areas where you want to spend more time to avoid pitfalls. So what are some of the successful cases you've seen when they go abroad?
I'd say we worked with early days, a company that we had incubated internally, even I think super early when I started the a design firm, a company called Square Panda, who was actually so the company we incubated with my former partner in, in design firm and Square Panda was a product that has a physical product where you can learn to read letters and then construct words. So combine both digital and physical, you'd have little physical plastic letters that you put onto this board. It pairs with a, a, a tablet, which is an application and it can recognize those letters. So it would be adaptive and learn over time. And so this was, a, and then learning English is always a, a big thing, right? And education in China is a huge area. Mm. So this was the early days and trend when remote learning was a big thing, right? And so they shipped the product to China and started the market there. I believe they're shipping in many parts of the world now, but this is, I think, a successful case where it's, it hit on the mark of a easy to use product, a trend in education, and be able to apply hardware and software to make it accessible and fun to play with. And so they, I think they've done pretty well. That's an example of actually going into China. Oh, okay. I see. So now do you see companies still wanting to go into China or not? Not really. really. Everyone's afraid of going to China now. Afraid? (laughs) Yes. One, if you're not there, as you're not there, you will get crushed so fast. Uh, Right. Um, Because I think local teams can out-execute you in terms of their understanding of the market, their work culture, the 996, or the speed at which they can iterate. And unless... <laughs> or copy, yeah, or copy. That's the other thing. Yeah. Uh, and unless you're actually there, it's very hard to build brand. Right. We've seen huge companies fail mm. that have tried to enter the market. And anything from F and B and services industry to consumer, right? I think there are actually very few success stories of foreign brands entering China. So, are people giving up the 1.3 billion population? <laughs> <laughs> The rest of the world is about, what is it, 6.778? No, I think it's interesting. I think the world has become bifurcated, right? You're either on the China camp or US camp, which is unfortunate. But in terms of like where you're going to invest and put money, you're going to go where you have the least risk. Technology company, I think the risk is even higher because our original thesis in the fund was to be able to do cross-border and help them to bring technology overseas, either into China or outside of China. Again, because of politics and the way the technology world has split up, right? It's become impossible, very difficult to export technology because the U.S. government has restricted what you can, number one, invest in, what you can export. A lot of it is strategic. It becomes national security issues. National security, that's right. It becomes national security. And because the rules are vague intentionally, you don't want to be in that gray zone where suddenly you become strategic and you can't do anything. Mm. But, you know, if products like physical products are exported to smaller markets like Southeast Asia. Yeah. It was like a lot smaller. Yeah. In some cases, it doesn't make sense to customize it for that culture, right? Yeah, it doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. How how about India? (laughs) Is there a need for? India, absolutely. The market is huge, but the um, purchasing power is different, right? There's a, there's a big, Get a stratification of different um, economy, socioeconomic classes, right? And right. so you do have, you know, high purchasing power in a very small segment. And then the rest of the, the population, it's not to say that you can't service that. There's certainly a lot of opportunity to do that, but you just can't apply, let's say, a 
$500 product here and just put it in India. You right. have to think about it. Completely to... different. Yes, yes, yes. Totally. One of my uh, India partners, she showed me a product. It was just a piece of paper to help women pee in the public more elegantly. It was just a piece of paper. Right, right. I think there's a lot of need there because it's the environment's not, not always that ideal oh. when you go to public washrooms. Yeah. I think there's a lot of user needs that are probably underserved that yeah. where innovation can come in like that example of the, I don't know what you call it, the peep. <laughs> the peep, the peep. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the in a, as a business, I think um, a lot of times people look at, can you scale that in, in a profitable way, right? Obviously mm -hmm. with business, you have to scale a lot of paper to, to be able to make it profitable. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the Western mindset is I can ship a $200 product, maybe make 34% margins on that. And then that's quote unquote easier than shipping. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Some of the needs are very different because in those markets, sometimes even electricity is not stable yet. Having stove fires not stable yet. Yeah. Those kind of needs. So maybe solar power, like. Yeah. We definitely looked at interesting companies that are trying to service developing nations or what they call bottom of the pyramid. And, and as you said, there's needs where as a Westerner, you and I don't see day to day so, there, it's no longer, they leapfrog infrastructure by using mobile, right? There is no infrastructure, yeah. right? Yeah. There's no telecom. It's just mobile. They use solar. We've looked at companies that have a community solar generator, right? They share internet, they share power, right? These concepts are foreign to us, right? Mm -hmm. But there's obviously innovation yeah. that can happen in, in these markets that are different. Yeah, like when we were working with that Japanese company uh, mm. in, in China, like the biggest need is actually kids being stolen, right? You know? Right, right. That right. was the need, not the other strollers and all that. Yeah. Exactly. There, there are needs that you, again, going back to understanding the market, right? And the cultural mm. expectations. Okay. All right. To summarize, what's one key takeaway you want uh, the audience to learn from and, and <laughs> your experience? <laughs> yeah. One key takeaway. Wow, that's a hard one. What yeah. is Starting up tech startups or VC? Yeah. What's the one takeaway? I think I think takeaway is that there's always room for a better solution out there. I think having done this now for 25 years, I've seen hundreds of companies not only in terms of helping them build stuff, but looking at companies to invest in. And there's, it amazes me how people are always so innovative in coming up with ideas. Some of them are good and some of them are not so good, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I think that's where human ingenuity is still really strong. Right? I, I don't know, maybe one day AI and GPT will replace yeah. us <laughs> in a while, but I think humans, given that we live in the physical world, still experience and interact with other people. And there's always an opportunity to improve things and to make it better, easier, more delightful. And so I'd say the takeaway is to continue to look for those opportunities in the local market and is understanding how you can apply that into a product and make it global. I enjoy what I do because I'm able to work with a lot of entrepreneurs and see different things and learn all the time. I feel like it's never static. And because technology is, is continuing to evolve and made cheaper and easier for all of us, uh, those opportunities will only, I think, only increase. Yeah, and we're right in the vortex of the fourth industrial revolution now. Right, the, right. I think the next biggest thing will be AI girlfriends with a physical body, right? Like that's coming. That's happening already. That's yes, happening. it's like moving and uh, yeah, girlfriends, boyfriends, or just friends, <laughs> whatever. Yeah.
<laughs> but then we'll we'll be extinct in the next generation then. Yeah, it'll be like the sci-fi music movies where we see humans are just stuck in their pods all day with the VR on. They never leave, right? That actually is already creating a lot of mental health issues now with social media, right? Yeah. So AI and VR is just going to exacerbate that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an interesting, I think, social question, right? Yeah. What's happened to human yeah. and human interaction. <laughs> yeah, I think we should have a talk about ethical AI, right? What should be made and what should not be made, because not everything needs to be AI, right? When it not everything. You. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think you can't stop. You can't plug the hole in the wall anymore, right? It's already been let out. I know. No turning back. I think there are, are, we have already seen a lot of young people cannot find jobs, even in our industry. Yeah. I feel like a lot of companies don't want to train high and hire young people anymore. AI is automating a lot of things. Also, global outsourcing to the Philippines. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, I, I agree. Right? I agree. It makes a question of like, how do you educate the next generation, right? What do you teach them? Because like you said, yeah. Because Everybody has to become an entrepreneur. And you have to have skills that are not easy to replace, right? Because as you said, all the entry-level jobs that we typically did as interns or early college grads are yeah. um, done. Yeah, I used to I used to do cardboard, live and cardboard when I was an intern. Yeah. You know, there's no such intern jobs anymore. Canva took away even basic graphic <laughs> design, right? Right. right. <laughs> yeah, that's two clicks done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to do you have to do physical labor then. They, they can't be replaced easily. But yeah, but the plumber would make more than university grads now. <laughs> Probably. You're right. Plumbing, uh, repair, uh, yeah. things like that, right? Yeah, hard, yeah. Very hard to replace it's right now. It's really changing. I'm so glad I'm not in my 20s. <laughs> I know. I <laughs> At know. least we're older and have network, right? Yeah. 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 I guess if you, if you don't have the skills, you can be a TikTok influencer if you're in 20s. True. Yeah. But, and then there's so much misinformation also right now. Yeah. yeah. It, next year's election will be very interesting to see what happens. With, I think uh, in a few years time, we won't be able to tell what's real or not. Right? I know. That's the scary thing. You don't yeah. know what is being blasted to you. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So how can our audience contact you? Uh, you can reach me. My website is www.q.inc or you can find me on LinkedIn. Shoot me a note there and we can connect there. Okay. Thank you so much, Larry. For Thanks, Lynn. Good chatting. Bye. Bye.